All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Doing really well, Jeff. Uh, you know, this, this, as the Christmas season is coming into full swing, we're we're also ramping up at the Beatty household. We got a Christmas tree yesterday. We were supposed to get it today, but with the uh, prediction of the rain, we jumped the gun and went a day early. But there was a Christmas parade in Percival. I got a chance to walk a uh, wooden camel through the streets of Percival, so that was fun. Um, but it's good. It's, uh, it's a nice, peaceful Sunday as we uh, kind of wind down the year. So how are you? I am good. I'm tired. It is the busiest time of the year for uh, for my business and uh, doing double duty, getting up at five and going to the office and then going back at the end of the night and then working on weekends. And I'm I'm just not a young man anymore, John. My body is tired. <laughs> no, no. And that, um, you know, that that story of growth kind of reminds me of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which you had written about last year. It was a nice piece. Um, and when I when I read your article, I was like, yeah, I like the movie. It's a wonderful life. Um, and then last night uh, in the discussion, one of the one of the members of my household, I won't name names, but said that uh, this person said that they had never seen It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and I was shocked. So I said, well, we should we should watch it. And I realized this is probably the first time I'd watched it. And it had to have been over like 15 years because I remember like the general storyline. But um, it's like your article says you read it, watched it a thousand times. And like I can see that because it's got so much nuance and so many like there's like it's a great story overall story of sort of a man um kind of realizing like he's done a lot of good even though it maybe the world doesn't recognize it or by the worldly standards he hasn't recognized it but um there's just a lot of beauty and poetry and sort of um real subtleness to it that I never picked up before um and uh you know I kind of felt multiple times like uh you know we're all kind of George Bailey's in a certain sense of um you know we try to do what's right and uh, other people get accolades based on that. And, and the best response is to to be happy for them and to sort of, you know, um, be content with where we are in life because you never know like what the real impact of what we do is. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching that movie in my grandfather's basement just like over and over again as a kid. And like you said, there is a, there's a lot of subtlety to that movie. You know, George Bailey is this, you know, almost heroic like figure, but he's also... He's just kind of a broken man, you know. He's got the the bum ear. Things don't necessarily go his way. At times, he seems like Superman, Superman, and then other other times, he's kind of like I don't know, a little Bill Dotry from King of the Hill, like oh shucks, like what, why me type of situation. Um, and it, the story is, you know, it it layers into like what we talk about with politics and populism and corporations and all that type of stuff. And then it kind of layers back into family and like community and, you know, um, surrounding the ones that you love and lifting them up and making sure they, they, you show them gratitude and appreciation. So they'd never, you know, feel like they won't be missed if they're gone, because ultimately, you know, that's where John, or, uh, uh, George found himself, didn't he? Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, but like just getting to that point, like, he, you know, he's a man of dreams. Like he, he's got this dream of going on a big worldwide excursion after high school, before he goes to college, he saved up money for it. Um, I guess he'd been working for for a couple of years after high school, but it, before he went to college, he wanted to do this thing. And then uh, his father dies and he realizes like he he has to kind of put that on hold so he can help his, his family and the town of Bedford Falls. Uh, and then, you know, Couple of years, fast forward a couple of years later, um, he sent his brother with that money that he had saved for college off to college and he becomes a good football player. Um, and then he gets married and they're already going their honeymoon. They got $2,000 in hand. And, uh, you know, it's just weird to think about $2,000 now. And, uh, you know, that would, that wouldn't pay for much on a honeymoon nowadays, but I, from in 19, uh, what is it? Probably 30, 1930s at that point, like, or 20, it's probably 1920s. Um, like, you know, there was a lot of good chunk of change. And then by the end of the day, it's all gone because he had to give it out to people so that he can save the building and, and loans and uh, keep people, families getting fed for a week while the banks close. Um, you know, it's a, just like, again, like having dreams and then those dreams falling short and uh, just kind of, I think, accepting it. And like, there's a there's a good part of society that doesn't want to accept bad things that happen, but, the, you know, you you do kind of have to accept it and then make the best of it um and uh you know he does that that the the uh 
the honeymoon night, they, uh, his wife, new wife gets the old house that she's always dreamed of and it's a wreck, but you know, they make the most of it. And I think that that's, that's a real key to happiness in life is uh, making the most of what you get. Cause there's certainly so much that you can't control. Um, and you just, you know, you do what you gotta do. Yeah. And you look back and you go, you know, he had to use his honeymoon movie or honeymoon money to keep the banks open. Now, just think about that statement for a second, to keep the banks open, right? Like how privileged are we in a society that that's not really something that we think about, but mm -hmm. that was something that happened regularly in, in American society. You know, uh, there were constantly panics or depressions or all these types of things. I mean, the economy is going to do the this, right? And, um, you know, while it may still be erratic and out of control at times, it's not nearly, uh, it doesn't happen as frequently anymore. Um, you know, you can say that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but as American citizens, most of us have never had to, you know, deal with the fact that like, we just might not be able to have our money, you know, like, the banks just might not be open, you know, yeah. and that'll be a thing that we have to like live through. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's amazing. Like you, you know, you go to the bank and it says a $250,000 uh, insurance from the FDIC. Um, and then we saw like last year with the, or was it this year? I guess this spring with the um, Silicon Valley bank going under and, you know, there was a mechanism where that could be purchased like basically over the weekend by another bank so that all the money that was in those those bank accounts could be made available the next day. And it's um, like, it is truly, it is truly wonderful. And I, I think like, it's so easy to just kind of like throw like, oh, regulation and oh, laws. They just, it's just government seeping in there and taking control of our lives. But like, there's kind of a, a balance to that where like some regulation is, can be beneficial to society as a whole. And you imagine like, if there wasn't a mechanism for a bank to be taken over over the weekend, um, well, you know, there wasn't a bank that could, it was in a position to buy another smaller bank. Like um, we could have been in another depression or, you know, would have hurt a lot of companies and the, the specifically the Silicon Valley bank, like that was interesting because it affected a very particular niche in the, in, in the world um, that actually has an outsized influence on how everyone lives and uh, works with the technology industry in Silicon Valley. So um, you know, it may not have affected like, you know, you or I, cause I don't have any money in Silicon Valley bank, but it could have affected businesses and things that sort of would have had a bigger ripple effect for how the world operates. And, um, just, you know, interesting in the same sense, like, you know, COVID I was sitting in, in uh, church today and I'm looking at the, the dates, um, and we got the hymnal and you can kind of like flip ahead to the, to the, uh, next weeks. And the, one of the kids was messing with it and said like March of 2024. And I was like, oh man. That was four years ago, four years ago from March, 2024 would have been March of 2020. And I just remember like, just how crazy that month was where the world just seemed mm. to shut down. But um, here we are now. It's uh, we're all, we made the most of that you know, for better. For worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's crazy. And you think back and, you know, you mentioned um, the Silicon bank, you know, uh, kind of going under and the, the mechanisms to buy the banks. I mean, that's kind of what happened. Where, where's this book here? Acts of Congress. You know, we're talking about the 08 financial crisis where we had a really big bank, you know, too big to fail, right? Mm -hmm. That was failing. And uh, Congress and uh, business had to like step up and kind of make sure that the banks were open and making sure. I mean, there were members of Congress that were legitimately fearful that that George Bailey scenario was going to happen on their watch. And that, that shows, you know, a couple of things, how maybe poorly they were doing at their watch, you know, mm -hmm. the fact that it was that they got to a point where they thought it might happen. Yes. Catastrophe adverted, but for how long <laughs> and, and, you know, and, you know, you you have the subsequent legislation that gets put in afterwards that, of course, turned into a, a political, you know, fight as opposed to actually, you know, working on that regulation that you mentioned earlier where, yes, we are, we're not a fan of more rules and more regulation, but we also recognize that a little bit is good, you know, like, like I tell, like I tell my kids all the time, they would always ask me, my young ones, like, can we go outside and play? Can we go outside and play? And I would go, no, because daddy has to go outside and watch you. But we're going to get a fence in the spring. <laughs> and once we get a fence, you can go out there. See, 
we we put a little structure in we put a little yeah. fence and we can and now i know where they are i know they're not going to wander outside because you know i got the fence gates locked and they're too small to get from you know and so now now they have a little bit more freedom and that's kind of the way that we should like look at our rules and regulations and you know um I, I don't know. I don't know how this ties back to George Bailey. I got to bring it back to George Bailey, uh, John. But, you know, um, well, actually, let's go back to uh, to Bailey and the the building and loan and Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter was like he was kind of like the robber baron figure in in the movie, wasn't he? He was he was the the evil man who just wanted profit, who didn't really care about the people. And he caused the bank panic, didn't he? Yeah, and I, that's kind of my understanding is that he's he calls a loan or something and, and basically takes all the money out of the bank. And then, you know, as we you think about fractional reserves, like the bank owes a hundred bucks to everyone, but it only has like ten dollars in its vault if, if in a sort of as a percentage, or maybe twenty-five bucks. But um, you know, you take that twenty-five dollars out and then someone needs to get money and there's none available. And then everyone gets worried about the uh, having money to buy bread for the next week. And so he kind of he sort of seemed it, it's thinly veiled that he seems like he engineers a lot of these panics. And then of course, the, at the end he has the uh, uncle Billy loses the 8,000 bucks that was supposed to get deposited. And he's kind of absent-minded and it gets stuck in the paper. And uh, Mr. Potter could have been a good guy and found uncle Billy, but he peers through the door of his office and sees uncle Billy rummaging through the trash, trying to find this $8,000 and then going back and retracing his steps. And he says nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. No, he doesn't say nothing. What he does is starts calling the press and calling yeah. the DA and saying, you you gotta arrest George Bailey because he's he lost eight thousand dollars and uh, and then you know later on George is, comes to him and asks for just a bridge loan basically to figure out and uh, Mr. Potter is like nope not happening so um, he's just a a ruthless ruthless man and uh, but there's there's a lot of truth in that there's a lot there's a lot of truth that that's how our economy works in a lot of ways if you you look back before the building alone, the into wonderful lifetime period, and you go back to the uh, the Jackson administration and the fight that he had with the National Bank and Biddle and Biddle, you know, he was intentional about causing bank panics just to to you know kind of wield his power against Jackson. And you know, when you have the you have people that are so intent on being right for whatever their thing is and they wield their power to show that they're right who gets hurt george bailey gets hurt like right. regular people get hurt it's not mr potter mr potter doesn't care nicholas biddle doesn't care andrew jackson doesn't care you know like it, it, it we're 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 little pawns in the game and you know it's it's a shame that the system works that way in a lot of the ways uh, it's also good cuz i mean if you move that power, then you put the hands in somebody that's good and, and you can kind of balance it back. Or even if, you know, who what is good and what is bad, right? Like Nick, uh, Biddle's idea and Jackson's idea may have been different. They both might have been right. We will never really know because they just fought against each other. Um, right. They should have sought compromise somewhere along the lines. And that would have been better probably for the people long term. Um, I think – you know, there. I think it's Polk after Jackson's like, big fight to destroy the National Bank. He actually puts forward legislation that kind of like has a happy medium, and we we ride that until 1913, and it was fairly successful. You know, there's still highs and lows, but um, it very different than what you would think would come out of a Jackson protege. You know, um, but yeah, it's that Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter. No, I love the the, the pun too because his, his um rental property place is called Potter's Field, and of course that's where they, that's where they they um you put the dead bodies or something like it's got a very negative connotation. Uh, yeah, so that was one of my my favorite again like a subtle thing you pick up that if you're a teenager and you're not as you know don't know how the world works you're kind of like yeah whatever, but when you're older um you uh, you chuckle at that kind of note owed to uh to the, how bad it really was and you know again like trying to show that george bailey is is really trying to make his town better uh and you know bring people back from the dead if you will uh in this way. yeah and he he's george is the type of guy he's got dreams he's got aspirations but 
he's kind of the kind of type of guy that takes care of the problems in front of him, you know, before he can go off. And that's what you talked about with like his dad, his dad dying and staying in his brother. Um, his brother goes off and becomes a war hero and comes back and then has the opportunity to go to college. And George all along the way, I think he has opportunities to step out from the life that he's living and go the life that he wanted to live. But each time he says no. And it, you know, part of that is probably because of like honor of being the firstborn, carrying on the family legacy, like holding and shouldering that responsibility that comes with being a firstborn or the man in the house. And then part of that is it might just be because he thinks he has to, you know, um, or maybe he's scared. You know, at the end of the day, I, I I never really considered this before, but maybe George is scared to step out. He is a big fish in a small pond in a lot of ways. And maybe that, you know, maybe that's what kind of drives him a little mad at the end, uh, which, you know, gets him on the bridge, this idea that, you know, I could have been this thing. And I just, I never had the courage to step out and do it. And now I'm stuck here in this shoddy town and nobody appreciates me. So I'm gonna, I'm, nobody cares that I was born. I'm gonna jump off the bridge, but. Luckily, thanks to an angel, we learned that George Bailey would be very much missed. No, I think it's it's actually more of like a Ciceronian idea of like, you know, you've got you've got responsibilities and then you have to follow through with those responsibilities and sort of um, like you said, he's the oldest and the firstborn. So that just kind of he things he didn't choose. Like he didn't choose to be the firstborn. He didn't choose to, to his parents that his father had this building and loan. Um, but the the responsibility was put on top of him and so he just has to do the best he can in that situation so i maybe there is a, a sort of um you know what was me fatalism to it but i think given the time frame and sort of when the movie was made i would say it's much more of just kind of recognizing that sometimes society can have big claims on you and you have to kind of rise to the occasion and i think he he kind of does that and i think um you know maybe just at the end he, he just he's just like he's like you always say, you and I always say, like he's just tired, you know, um, and it's just been one too many crises, and uh, you know, and you got a couple martinis in you, and it's bad news. But I, I like, I think, um, I think it, it's more just like he recognizes his responsibility towards the the greater community, the Commonwealth, if you will, and like that is preserving Bedford Falls. That is, and you know, like he's always talking about like like these are people's houses, these are people's mortgages, and I just, you know sure i could i could foreclose on a mortgage but there's a person behind that like there's a, a human being behind that mortgage that actually matters and matters to bedford falls and so um i'm willing to put a little bit more of my skin in the game in order to to make sure that they're whole after all this because you know i i know i guess like i'm ernie the text driver like i know ernie and mm -hmm. um, you know he's good for for that mortgage um even though the bank declines him so i think like i think it's much more of a understanding that the <clears throat> this sort of the civilization around you has demands and you kind of rise to that occasion rather than um just kind of being uh you know stuck stuck if you will i mean he is kind of stuck in a certain sense but i think it's more just recognizing where he, who he is and where he needs to be in order to help help people in general well i think it also it it ties into our idea uh, you know, uncapping the house, more corporations, this idea that power should be as close to the place that it's being wielded as possible, right? And, yeah. um, you know, because that's what George, he knows Ernie, so he he trusts him more. And Ernie knows him, so he trusts him more. And that's what we we should have in our local governments and our, our district federal government. Um, and we don't. Um, and, and, you know, even with our banks, we don't have small banks where you can kind of go to the loan and you know the banker and you have an established relationship. Everything's big and cold and corporate and it's paperwork and it's, you know, a computer algorithm making the decisions in a lot of situations. And there's no real human interaction anymore. And it's good for the people at the top because it makes things safe and easy for them. But for the people at the bottom, you know, it makes it more difficult to break through. It makes it more difficult to have opportunity and to grow. And in a lot of ways, that's anti-American, isn't it? You know, because our our entire country is born on this idea of, you know, building a business and building a life and creating opportunity. Um, and we kind of live in a system that is almost the antithesis of that now. Um, and it's a shame. It's yeah, it's kind of um, you know, instead of 
opening up new opportunities. It's just sort of like, let's make sure that the uh, bad things don't happen. And well, again, yes. like, like, you know, you've got the insurance for the bank, bank accounts. Like that's, that's good. Um, but then, like you said, like so much of it is, is automated. And like, if you were apply for a mortgage and stuff like it, you know, you may know the lender, um, but the lender has to eventually sell this mortgage to a greater, you know, it has to be fit, fit a particular mold. And so you have to have a certain amount of income and you have to sort of, you know, fewer liabilities and you have to have a credit score to a certain amount. Like it's very much, um, a lot of it is, can be outside your hands depending on the situation. And then, um, so coupled that sort of things that you may not be able to control with like, how is this getting incredibly, incredibly expensive? Like we bought our house in the fall of 2020, oh, 20, uh, 2021. And at this point in 2023, for the same house, there's no way we could afford it. And that's just because, you know, interest rates changed at the same time, the market uh, housing prices kept going up. So couple that with more expensive dollars to borrow versus and a more expensive house. Like um, there's just a lot of, a lot of other things that you can't control. And so, you know, there are fewer opportunities, fewer opportunities for homeownership, fewer opportunities for people to make big changes in their life. And you, you do feel kind of like you're stuck in the, in a treadmill waiting for, um, to see what happens next. Well, and, and you see like George believes in the people like he believes that if you give these people the opportunity, you, you let them borrow the money, they will pay it back because they're good and decent people, you know, mm -hmm. and, and Potter doesn't. And the whole structure of, you know, forms and algorithms is the same way. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, if, if you are already making money and you're a safe bet to make me money, then sure, I'll lend you money. But if I don't know you mm -hmm. and you don't have the degrees or the fancy things, oh, I'm going to tie something in here. I mentioned this to you earlier, Gilded Age. I know you haven't watched the show yet, but- No, you... I'm like a two episodes in. It's amazing. Okay. I like this. I'm in, I'm in season two, okay? And season two, there's, um, uh, it, it's not a big spoiler, but I'll, I'll share it is there's one of the servants uh, has basically created this clock mechanism that works better than anything else that they've ever seen before. And so he, he, um, the people around him believe in him and they give him the money to go to the patent office and file the patent so he can, you know, turn this idea into something. And the patent office says, well, you don't actually work as a clockmaker and you don't have any of the certifications, so you're not allowed to apply for the patent. It doesn't wow. matter that he did the work. It doesn't matter that it works better than anything else. None of that matters. You don't have the proper certification and therefore you don't matter. And I think that's, you know, that is, again, it's the anti-American, American way, you know, where we build this great country full of opportunity and we allow all these different members of society to have a voice and to create and grow something awesome and then when they create and they grow something awesome we start putting barriers in because we don't want anybody else to take it from us <laughs> yeah actually i mean like this there's like going back to the patents like that is a key part of the constitution like granting sort of temporary monopolies but i think it's sort of the um the permanent monopolies or the permanent class structure that that uh, is, can be the problem. Um, no, I mean I'm talking about like certifications to as a clockmaker and stuff. I think like so much of what we you do, like oh, you need a lawyer to look over that. Like you need a lawyer to just read this and make sure that you're not have any liability or there's no issues down the road or no one's going to come back and get after you. But like it's ridiculous. Like so much of what what you do is just kind of like it's just a handshake and it's agreement. And if you can. Like I took a, a business law uh, class in college and it was kind of eye-opening, like how much of, of, of what we agree is really just like, you're just kind of trust the other person. And so, yeah, you get a contract, but really the contract is just sort of a, a stamp that, that I trust that this person's going to do what they say they're going to do. And then, you know, usually it's when uh, they don't follow through and then that's where the lawyers have to get involved. That's where we got to get damages and figure out who's responsible and who shouldn't like... Um, and then, you know, then you create new laws because, oh, I can't believe that this happened. And you're, uh, you're, you're cutting off opportunity left and right. Yeah. And then the next thing, you know, George is standing on the bridge mm -hmm. in snow, you know, and he's got to have an angel come and save him. We need more angels. We do. <laughs> we need <laughs> so many angels. more angels. <laughs> he's got to recognize the angels. They're all around us. Jeff Mayhew, Politics and Parenting here. 
As some of you may know, I have another podcast called What the Book with my good friend, Craig T. Stewart. This month, we're reading Ender's Shadow by Orson Scott Card. And we're recording this Thursday, so I just jumped into the book, just finished chapter one, and it was just one paragraph that really struck the politics and parenting chord with me about populism. What is populism? So let me uh, let me read that for you real quick. Because these fools always look up for power. People above you, they never want to share power with you. Why you look to them, they give you nothing. People below you, you give them hope, you give them respect, they give you power because they don't think they have any, so they don't mind giving it up. And as you look behind me, you see those two gentlemen over my shoulder, uh, Andrew Jackson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and you think to yourself, what is populism? Populism is this this understanding that there's always going to be a large group of people out there who feel left out. And if you can meet them on their level, if you can show them respect, which both Andrew Jackson and FDR did, in different ways, they will give you power. And both of those men accumulated a lot of power. And at times they wielded it like kings. And that's why as citizens, we are living in a populist era. And it's important that we understand who we give our power to. Well, thank you so much for letting me share a little bit about what the book Ender Shadow Look for that podcast out in December on Spotify or Substack. And as always, remember to like, subscribe, and share. Peace and love. Um, speaking of, of people that uh, that had a tremendous impact that we've maybe forgotten a little bit about, you had the uh, got another piece uh, published about this guy, John Bingham. And uh, he's got many claims to fame. What, what would you say is his most important? Well, I mean, so it was uh, published. Who in was the, John Bingham? Who was John Bingham? So he was a he was a congressperson. He actually held the same district in Ohio that William McKinley held. Um, so just a lot of history there with populism and presidency right there. Um, John Bingham was, uh, you know, he's a pretty smart man. Um, kind of one note in a lot of ways. He really... He was an ab an early abolitionist, um, and then after the Civil War, he was in Congress, and he was part of the Reconstruction Committee and had the opportunity to write the 14th Amendment, essentially, um, some very key verbiage in there. And his, his focus was extending the rights, the Bill of Rights, to every single American citizen, because prior to that, um, those rights were not necessarily – the states kind of overrid them, um, mm -hmm. and this – kind of moved the Bill of Rights above the states and said, now every single citizen was there. Now, we can look back at the 14th Amendment and the verbiage and kind of the way it went with uh, in the Supreme Court and how it was interpreted. And we can say, well, it did a little bit more than just extend the Bill of Rights to the individual. It extended the Bill of Rights to the corporation, which we've already mentioned on the show is supposed to be limited, <laughs> but is not. Um, and And I think that's kind of part of like, that structural breakdown. But he was a very interesting, he, you know, he also, he tried the co-conspirators of Lincoln's assassinate, uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth and all of them, that whole big, you know, it was a plot. Like, I, th I don't know if people, how much people know about this, but it's just, it was a plot. It wasn't just Abraham Lincoln. It was the whole cabinet. It was Ulysses right. Grant. It was, it was Andrew Johnson. They were all supposed to go. Um, Lincoln was just the only one that died that night. Well, that's uh, yeah. Seward gets gets shot in his house, and uh, he's sitting in his bed recovering, and he he has no one has told him that Lincoln's dead, but he knows that Lincoln's dead because he knows that if Lincoln was alive, he would be by his bedside because they were that like that good of friends. Um, so yeah, it was a tremendous plot, and um, you know, like all things, we kind of we find the key particulars and sort of hang on to that. With was just John Wilkes Booth and him jumping off the balcony and shouting six Emperor Tyrannus, and then. The, the running through the Maryland countryside, but um, you know, there's always bigger, bigger well, things around. And Bingham, Bingham is the, I think he's the lead prosecutor. He's one of them. And one of the co-conspirators is a woman and he prosecutes her. And I believe she's put to death. And this was a big deal at the time because women were not put to death. Women were not up for prosecution like this before. And Bingham, you know, he didn't let that bother him. He, 
he had a job to do and he had a focus and that was, you know, um, you could read the story and you could say maybe she wasn't as integral a part to deserve mm -hmm. the 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 punishment that she got. Um, but we're not there. We don't have all the evidence. So um, but it is it is interesting that because, you know, I write in the article, the 14th Amendment was having trouble getting passed and Bingham worked with other members of Congress to pass the military reconstruction acts, which was a series of acts that basically kind of forced the South into uh, ratifying the 14th Amendment as is. Right. Um, and I argue that wasn't necessarily the best strategy um, because, like I said, you know, force, any type of force is typically met with another force, you know, mm -hmm. and you're going to get rebellion. Um, and we did in the South <laughs> in a lot of different ways. And uh, I think that there there could have been a better way, but had Andrew Johnson not been president and it been Lincoln, I don't think we have that same problem. I think Lincoln is able to unite enough of the South to to come on board with the 14th Amendment. Maybe the verbiage and because one of the parts of the 14th Amendment, I think, that does a lot of harm to the South is, is the one about the debts of the war. And I understand the northern perspective on this and, you know, like, hey, you were a rebellious state. You caused this war. You We're not going to pay. We have to pay for our own war. You have to pay for your own war. Although the north took money from the south to pay off their debts, but mm -hmm. the south wasn't able to get money from the north to pay off its debts. And they were punished in a lot of ways. And we've we talk about that a lot. Punishment leads to bad things. And yeah. it it hurts the freemen as well, you know, because they yeah. live in the South and, and it hurts the entire economy to do that. And I think that had the North had a little bit more, I don't know, forgiveness in their hearts, yeah. some understanding that of the ramifications of what they were doing, I think maybe you could have had a smoother transition. Maybe force wasn't there. I think Lincoln is the type of person who would have understood that. Um, I think Lincoln is the type of person who would have been able to, you know, pull John Bingham aside and all the other members of of the Reconstruction Acts and go, hey, let's try to find some compromise here because we have been divided for too long. We need to really unite this country back together. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I so I went to Virginia Tech, which is one of those land grant universities that came out of Reconstruction where they were trying to rebuild the South, and um, you know, like there's positives I think out of that where you're trying to. You know, you, you'd seed a bunch of land and hope that the university comes out of it. Um, but I think like the other part was uh, there wasn't enough um, protection, I guess, for people in the South. Like if you were an, you were a Northern supporter, if you were a free man, um, you know, you basically needed cavalry units around to keep you alive in some situations. Like there was a lot of, of still of unrest in there. And, and like you said, like uh, if you kind of, come at it and you force someone to agree to someone something they will feel resentment even if they if they're wrong and they maybe they know they're wrong but um you know no one likes to be treated and it's just bad, bad to say like the self wasn't treated people right but like at the same thing like you kind of you can lead by example and you can say like look let's reconcile on these tough issues and hopefully that will teach you to reconcile with with uh coming back together and um yeah, I, I I do. And maybe it, even if Lincoln had been assassinated, but you didn't have a scoundrel like Andrew Johnson, maybe. Well, and I think I, you're right. I, Andrew Johnson was a scoundrel in a lot of ways and a drunk. Um, I think he was. Is he the one? I'll have to go back and look it up. But I believe he was drunk during his presidential inauguration and he kind of just rambled on. It was just like an embarrassment. I remember I think I remember reading and I'm pretty sure it was him. Um but yeah, he he wasn't very good at his job, and no. you know he was John Bingham. I think led his impeachment trial as well. Um, and you know now the impeachment was, you know that was a kind of a nuts and bolts thing about the presidency and the Senate and and you know um, advise and consent. But um, I actually I think I I think Johnson was right on that. <laughs> um, but you know. It is one of those side effects of government where sometimes you can't get what you want, so you go after somebody for something else. Um, and you use the, uh, the the mechanisms even in an impolitic way, and you get stuck. Get yeah, stuck which you know, again, not the best way. And if if we if we fast forward this or we layer this over top of like, remember the end of World War One, 
and Woodrow Wilson, and he he was he was trying to tell the the European allies like, hey, we gotta like we gotta be fair to Germany here. You know, the war is over. We've we've got everything back. We need to be fair. But the European allies they were just really bitter, and they they mm -hmm. they punished Germany. And what happened? <laughs> you know, you punish yeah, people. It's not like they came back and like were just upset about the punishment. No, they created despair in a nation and they allowed a dictator to rise, you know, and and in the South, we didn't have a dictator rise, but we did have a lot of problems. And I think that, you know, the 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 racial problems that we still have in our country are you know, directly related to the fact that we just never really handled it properly. We didn't really come to this understanding and move the country forward. We just kind of forced people to accept the rules that we put in place without actually walking people through them. And that's so that's uh, yeah, that's that I mean, it was like 100 years almost if you consider like the Civil Rights Act kind of being the end, but even that doesn't solve everything that just is another sort of that's probably um and going back to our uh, Why Congress book, like that's a good example of of really trying to find that compromise to bring people along, people giving people their chance to to give their peace, so that you can you can say like, look, I heard you, we listened to you, and this is the way we're going to go. And um, you know, like like you said, like the the Fourteenth Amendment, the Reconstruction, a lot of it was kind of poison pill things that said like, if you want to be part of the country, and we just fought a war to keep you as part of this country, um, you have to agree to these things, and it's it is kind of you know it's not giving people the opportunity to really come along and to change their perspective it's just sort of them maybe grudgingly saying oh fine i'll do it and like that's a lot of um you've got a lot of confederates basically that's sort of like yeah i'll take an oath of office that's pretty an oath to the country that's pretty weak and then i won't really change my beliefs and then i'll join the ku klux klan or something like that and um start ravaging the countryside like it's you know in one sense you got the the laws change but the the um the people underneath it don't necessarily uh, don't change and aren't congruent with those laws and that's where you get such um dis uh disaffection discontent um and real like real trouble for you know uh 100 years if you will from civil war to civil rights act and, and then beyond yeah and and the laws change but like like you said the people don't change and the laws are not written in a way to change the people mm -hmm. If that makes sense, right, because they all require enforcement, and if the federal government wasn't didn't have enough people, and then people kind of lost, they didn't have enough soldiers, and then they kind of lost interest in sort of enforcing it, so they just sort of moved away, and then it just becomes like the the vacuum that gets left uh, gets taken over. Well, and let's not let's not forget, it's not like the North. Yes, there were a lot of abolitionists like John Bingham who went to school with a African American who you know, broke the color barrier at Franklin College. So John Bingham has this idea that, uh, or understands that people of color are no different than him because he was, he was, he had that, that experience of going to school with him. And, but a lot of people in the North don't really feel that way. A mm -hmm. lot of people in the North are against slavery because of you know the idea of an Ameri of being an American and being free and all this stuff, but they don't actually believe that people of color are equal. They don't want them to have the same rights and roles as every everybody else. This just comes about because the abolitionists through the Civil War are able to kind of make their point and and get what they want out of it. And and it is right. People of color are just like the rest of us. We're no different, <laughs> but we didn't. We didn't convince enough minds in the North to help, you know, transition through the South and to convince the minds in the South. You know, one of my like kind of uh, history things that I, I like to like debate in my head is like, what if John C. Calhoun had lived long enough to meet Franklin Douglas? Because John C. Calhoun is just one of the most brilliant men that's ever walked the face of the earth. He was so smart and he had he was so smart he rationalized slavery into his argument even though it actually goes against his own you know theory of government and then that's because he doesn't have any real experience with people of color being on his level but at the same time he doesn't have a lot of white people that are on his level either because that's just how smart he is and i wonder had he lived long enough and met um franklin douglas Fred, Frederick I, Douglas. Frederick Douglass, Franklin, Frederick, sorry. <laughs> I feel 
I feel like John C. Calhoun's mind might have been changed, or at least he would have had to like dig deep for a real like crazy explanation of why he was wrong right at that point. But you know, if he had met somebody and gone, I think it would have been an eye-opening experience for him. He might have had that epiphany and be like, I've been wrong all these years. It's we have held them back, and that's why they don't seem as if they are equal to us. But in reality, everybody is, as the declaration declares. All men are created equal. Yeah, you just got to give them that opportunity. You know, like Frederick Douglass had the opportunity. He fought for it. He he seized it. And then he became a leading speaker. Um, and like that's, you know, like you said, like the North, a lot of the early just rhetoric around it was not really, this is a, a war about slavery. This is a war about the Union. And it's only like as the war progresses, and I think specifically like Lincoln seems to be getting more abolitionist abolitionist talking in his ear and then he, like, he meets Frederick Douglass multiple times and they they develop a friendship and then he kind of realizes like no those this war is about slavery like that is the key issue and then and then that kind of gets it but I, you know there wasn't enough time in Lincoln's uh you know to actually convince enough people about that it was kind of like he saw that and he was experiencing that through the war but um, most people's experience of the war was um just the losing family members and families breaking apart and the toll it had on the country as a whole and i think you know it just it's one of those things like it takes time to convince like lincoln needed time to have be convinced about this and so you can imagine like if they were the president and you you know the most about a war and you have the best information of the time but even you have to kind of come to see where you were wrong or where the the, the true path is um you know you imagine that you need the same thing for everyone in the country yeah absolutely um so john there's there's like an open seat in Congress in our district. Did you know that? I heard there's a many open seats uh, countrywide, but it is exciting that our the Virginia 10 is back in play. So there seems to be a lot of people that are just grasping for that power. Do you know how many people we have that in our district that have applied for office so far? Is it 11? What was that? Was it like 10 the other day and now it's 11? So we've got... Uh, Jennifer Boisco. Boisco, uh, yeah. Okay. These names are really hard to say, by the way. Oh, so uh, Fillercorn, Gray, Helmer, Call, Layton, Maldonado, Carney, Reed, and Supermayan. Supermanyan. <laughs> He's Sorry. so so hard to read. Uh, and then those are the Democrats. And then uh, Travis Nimbard uh, just announced as well. I saw an article on Inside Nova. And then we have two Republicans, Mike Clancy and Brooke Taylor. What the heck's going on out there, John? What, what's in I the just, water? People see an opportunity, you know? I mean, like, I, we had, was it 11 for we our 11. contest? Well, th we so where are all the Republicans at? Uh, I think there's a there's a person that ends with rump that's running that's kind of scaring a lot of people away. It's <laughs> um, like, Democrats like but fortune, you know, fortune favors the bold. And, you know, I don't want, not that I want to convince a lot of people to run, but. Well, uh, so maybe. look, look at this list. Molinato is, she just won a delegates race. Okay. And Helmer, the same thing. As a first time delegate? No. She, uh, so she got reelected. She was in the 50th. And I think her district changed. Uh, I don't, let me look it up here real quick. Oh, VPAP's not working. Hold on. All right, I can't see it, but oh uh, no! I mean, like a lot of these people actually won uh, re-election. I think Eileen Fillercorn, um, she got redistricted out, and so she, I mean, maybe she lost her primary or something. She's she actually didn't run, but she was the former minority leader for the Democrats, or and I think at one point speaker of the House of Delegates when the Democrats were in power. Yeah, so Mullen I understand she lives in Fairfax, or at least that's where her district was. Yeah, Maldonado uh, is HD fifty. Um, Helmer is a delegate as well, um, or is he senate state senator? No, he's delegate as well. Um, and then Travis Nimbard just lost to Ian Lovejoy in a delegate race, and now he's running for Congress. I mean, how absolutely like why why? I don't understand. You know what he should do? He should run for school board, John. He should run for school board. You can you can do a lot on the school board. Let me tell you. What do you think these people are doing? Like, what's the what's the, like? 
What is their focus? Why are they running for office? They all say the same things. Nobody, no Republican will attack a Republican. No Democrat will attack a Democrat. There's no like real criticism of what's actually going on. It's just a whole bunch of finger pointing. Why are they running for office? Well, uh, I guess if you think about it, they probably think they've been doing a great job in their current seat. And I think that they deserve an opportunity to go to the next level. Um, and that's probably what all of them have told themselves. Um, but, you know, uh, it's tough, like, especially if you've already lost a race, like, I think that's a tough sell that that uh, you should go on the next one. But um, I don't know, like politics is, is funny, because, again, like, there's so much you can't control. So, you know, if you're someone and things, well, I, you know, I'm the best person in the Virginia 10th district. And I really just, I, you know, the people need to know me and put me on there. Um, and then, you know, you got to tell other people to think, say, think the same thing. And like, that's a tough, then it, be, it becomes tough. And I think looking back at our race, like, yeah, if you're not willing to kind of, I don't want to say attack someone, but really just trying to stick a point in there and say like why you're different. Um, it really just becomes a, a beauty contest in the worst possible sense where it's like, how can I, present myself as the most uh, partisan and the most uh, one-sided and the um, the most uh, person with the fewest ideas. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel about, so Brooke Taylor and Mike Clancy is for the Republicans. Who do you, are you hearing word? Is there any, I hear Alicia Andrews might enter the race. Um, on the Democratic side, we, we've heard, um, Oh, what's her name? I can't think of it. Danica Rome, potentially, and on the Democrat side. I mean, any other names you hear out there um, potentially running? Uh, well, I've been thinking about it, so. Yeah. Oh, John's thinking about it. Oh man, you want to get your you want to put your name in with the, with with that lot of fourteen people or twelve people or whatever it is already. You want to go in through that. Do you have a consultant? I, I, I wrote um, Nimbard on Twitter. I said, you know, the griff that everybody talks about, what it is, it's the uh, it's the consultants. And the marks are the candidates who are good fundraisers. Okay. And I said, hey, Nimbard, you just lost a delicate race and your campaign was less than inspiring. But it could be different but you need different people consulting you. Why don't you reach out? I live in the district. I'll give you a hand. <laughs> you respond to you? No, nobody responds to people. I have an R next to my name. Like I might as well be like walking around with the scarlet R right here. Like if I talk to a Democrat, nobody is going to talk to me. They don't care, you know? Um, although it, you know, having an R next to your name doesn't mean the Republicans will listen to you either. So <laughs> no, it's, it does go back to... Um... What you're going to bring along with you and uh if that's a network of people that can raise money along with you um well you know of... speaking of raising money there's only one person that has money raised on this uh campaign finance list at vpap do you know who that is Rick taylor right Rick taylor thousand dollars nobody else has any money raised well that's because the, the reports aren't in yet like that's because they've all yeah. filed after the deadline so we'll see you know in a month when everything gets due and then we'll know who's going to win the race. The one that has the most money here is probably going to win the primaries. <laughs> but that it goes back to it being a beauty contest. Like if it truly is about a beauty contest, if you just kind of shower yourself with cash, people love that. Well, I mean, if people give you money, you must be qualified, John. You must. There's no other. Yeah, that's right. Because There's no way. they. Come on. Rich people don't spend their money superfluously. They just, they're very conscientious about where they spend their money. There's no, you know. As someone described to me last time, it's a lot like horse racing where you just sort of like, what's the horse that I'm going to put my my cash behind? And it truly is like, well, if this horse has good odds, I'm going to put my money in. Like there's no, there's very little risk taking. And um, I think like, you look at some of the uh, the mechanisms that the, the House Republican leadership has, and I'm sure there's something similar on the Democratic side. Like, if you raise $250,000 in a quarter, you must be a good candidate, and so we'll start giving you support. But until you hit that magic threshold, um, there's nothing, you know, no one cares about you at all.
If, so is that legal though? It, it, I've, been, I've been thinking about this because of the Santos thing. And I know that the the NRCC, the Young Guns program, that's what that's what Santos was doing. He inflated his campaign numbers so he could get, um, you know, the money from the Republican Party. So Citizens United allows unlimited uh, donations to political PACs because they narrow the definition of corruption to quid pro quo. This mm -hmm. for that, and it says that. You know, indirect through political packs is okay because now you don't have a quid pro quo. You know, there's no give and take, so therefore it can't be corruption. But the influx of money has created campaigns or candidates that are trying to get into the get a, a voice, you know, as Santos was for whatever reason, or chasing money for whatever reason. And now it led to corrupt it led to actual corruption real corruption and what he was trying to do was quid pro quo he if he if he could prove that he raised $250,000 they would give him more money that's quid pro quo now technically santos doesn't give the money to the nrcc but and technically nrcc doesn't give the money to him all they do is then they they take their show pony and they start showing it to a different group of buyers yeah with with the imprimatur of like this is the this person, you know, has won a couple of heats. And so, you know, they're, they've got good odds, as they say in the horse racing industry. They open the door for more money to come in, right? Mm -hmm. Because before you reach that barrier, which it's a wealth barrier, okay, those doors are closed to you as a candidate, as a citizen, as anybody in this country trying to run for office, they're closed unless you can open them. And it's easier for you to open them if you have if you are wealthy and you have wealthy friends, if you're not wealthy and you don't have wealthy friends, it's going to be hard to get to that 250,000 marker. And realistically, you shouldn't need that much money to run for a primary race. Like, it's just obscene. It's, I mean, it's so much of it gets wasted on, again, like consultants and. Uh, well, look at. Sorry, look sorry. at look at Nimbard's race out in, in against Lovejoy. I mean, it was a it's it, it's a it's a lean R district in a off year and the campaign ads that Nimbard's team put out makes him look robotic and I never really thought much of it until I actually got to meet him in person and he's not robotic he's he he's authentic and he's got you know emotion in his eyes when he speaks and he's got facial expressions and none of that stuff came off in any of their advertising at all he comes off like a robot but he's a real person and that's where the consultants this this whole idea of like you know uh making things easier and and scaling it is to cut out all of the rough edges and make it perfect but perfect is imperfect because we don't want perfect things i want a diamond i don't want a cubic zirconia you know <laughs> You just want that sparkle, that uh, pizzazz. And diamonds are expensive, Jeff. Let me just say, like, you know, you need $250,000 to get a good diamond these days. Wow. Whoa. I don't know, man. That's, that is some diamond. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it all goes. Um, you know, I imagine January 1st, there'll be more names and such. And then January 15th, you'll... You'll get your numbers and you'll see who's doing well. Um, but, you know, I think maybe the Republicans in our primary weren't so willing to go after each other because it was ranked choice. But if you look at the the seventh district primary, that was a that was a massacre in terms of how nasty everything got. And I imagine with uh, what is it, what are nine Democrats running, it's going to also be uh, or 10 Democrats running. It's going to be really nasty on the Democratic side. Um, just because yeah. they're uh, they're not afraid to pull knives out. I mean, like what it, my understanding is, a lot of the uh, people try to do what they can behind the closed doors to sort of get people to drop out. Um, but when you don't have people dropping out, like they they're not afraid to uh, pull out the big guns, pull the oppo file out, and be like, "Hey, you've worked for us for a really long time, and we have hid your dirt for you. But now that you disagree with us, guess what? Spoiled system gonna rear its ugly head." It's not your turn. 
whose turn is it though like if, you, if if you're looking at the democrats which one of these people is it their turn uh if i was gonna put my finger to the wind i'd say probably filler coin because she was house of the delegates and uh isn't actually in office at the moment um so she probably by right if you know the the right to a not particular seat she probably has it um and uh, and then going back to fundraising i think she was a top fundraiser too so that's why it was kind of a shock that she lost her primary um but actually and then it goes back to like people losing elections and then still running like she lost a primary and then she's gonna run for this so um you know you never know just because he lost doesn't mean that's the end it's always possibilities yeah i lost to here. to everyone <laughs> you didn't you beat me john did you i think that was it no i think i beat brooke taylor that's right so well she's got another chance i mean she can she take out mike clancy i mean and in in all seriousness like i'm trying to think back like what did brooke and clancy stand for i mean i know clancy stood against joe biden but i don't know what he stood for and i honestly i don't remember brooke talking that much um i mean my recognition was brooke's big point was that she was a woman going up against another woman so that would be the key um and then for for clancy yeah i i don't remember anything in particular standing out um he made the joke that he was a lawyer and uh shakespeare said something about kill all lawyers but i think that's not something you want to actually talk about when you're running for office you kind of want to generally want to speak positively about yourself so um you know the self-deprecating humor has to kind of um there has to be some kind of a limit to that otherwise like uh you put ideas in people's minds so you know but it's it's a problem it's another lawyer run for congress and uh you know, got, got enough of those, let me tell you. Well, I mean, does he plan to write law, though? You know, because that's what a congressional member should do. And, and you know. No, you, read, you read Act of Congress. You don't have to write a law. You basically have your idea and you ship it off to the, <laughs> uh, what's the office that writes the law for you? That Like every, um, I can't think of the, the office in my head, but there's basically an office with a bunch of lawyers where you take your big idea and really, you know, more than the big idea, you take your acronym that uh, um, you can kind of backfill to something. And then um, they just write everything for you. And then they tack on all the writers and stuff. And then, well, you know what? That's going to change soon, though, because um, they're going to train that they're going to fire all those people and they're just going to hire AI to do that. So then you just take your big idea which is not really an idea. It's just an acronym and a slogan. And then you put it into the chat GPT, Bing, AI, Microsoft legislation portal. And then it spits out a whole new law for you. And then you just write up. Pages, you know, just to make sure that it's very comprehensive. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be minimum 250 pages. Like, it, and, you know, there'll be a lot of filler, lots of repeats. Lots of citing of old cases in there um, for no reason at all, and uh, probably a lot of pork as well. You know, everybody, who, anybody that wants to touch that bill will have to go touch the the ChatGPT and tell them where they live and be like, "Hey, put a little bit of that federal budget into my district's pocket if you want me to vote for this bill." It's just a checkbox, you know. You just you, you get a perpetual checkbox on your office door, like, "Yes, include me in all these pork bills," because then I'll vote for it. Oh man, and that always reminds me, and I I can't I wish I knew it well enough to recite it right now. But that um, Alexander Hamilton quote about the pork at the from the founding, ah, I'll have to look it up. I'll have to share it on the next show. It's such a great quote. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I'm just I'm I'm still getting text messages and emails about elections, and the elections are over. We rolled from the state elections right into the federal elections. The the people running for the state office rolled right into the federal office. There's no off season. As a citizen, you never get a time to break. You always have to be paying attention and you know try studying to understand so you can actually be a good steward of your responsibilities when you go to vote. And it's just exhausting, isn't it, John? It is exhausting, but that's what keeps the establishment of power because people just tune out and then they just show up on election day or election season, as they like to yeah, say. Or election season, that's right. And, you know, that's how they make money, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, the more people you can get to run for office, the more money you can fundraise because each one of those people have a different network. And inside of that network is money. And if you can pull more people into the network, 
you know, pull more money out of the network, it goes into the consultants, the campaign. They don't care if you win. Let's face it. They don't. That's not their responsibility. Their responsibility is getting paid. Sad because it's true. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe somebody should come up with an idea to change that system. Like a kind of a reform of the financial aspects of campaign. Is that, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Like a campaign finance, I don't know, constitutional amendment of some sort. I don't know. Maybe solve the problem or, I don't know, try to remedy it. <laughs> Like those constitutional amendments. We need more of those. Yeah. So, John, what do you got coming up? Are you uh you off the school board now? I have one more meeting. Well, so it depends on when you listen to this. So uh December 12th. It's the last meeting. Oh man. And technically, technically I've got a term until December 31st at midnight. Uh so be toasting in the new year and toasting in uh the end of, of four years of um of interestingness. No, I um I'm, we all get this opportunity to give comments at the end, and I'm just kind of thinking of uh, there's this quote that I was thinking of when I was running for office because there was some kind of like you know the the school board was seemed like it was in turmoil, but in reality it was just so quaint. But um, you know, just because you, the quote is just because you can't control the winds doesn't mean you give up the ship. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, you know, just you know, we this person got off the school board and then some got replaced, and that changed the makeup of it, and it's different, like. That's, you know, that's tough, but, you know, you got to hang in there. And um, that that quote has never been more true, honestly, after four years on the school board of uh, there's just stuff you can't control. And um, I think that requires a, a bit of humility uh, that I think is so lacking in politics where you understand, like, um, you've got ideas, you know, going back to George Bailey, so we're bringing all back to George. You've got grand ideas. You're going to get in there. You're going to get rid of of whatever pet project that is driving you crazy and you're going to add a new initiative that's going to change everything and then that hits the brutal reality of like life and working with eight other people and trying to manage a bureaucracy and trying to uh, understand a one point something billion dollar budget depending on the year and um you know like sometimes you just have to not really settle but just kind of be content with what what little bit you can do because um that's kind of what was available. And so like, that's, that's what I've gained. Uh, that's the wisdom I've gained in my four years of the school board is um, there's a lot that you can't control and you have to make the best of what you can. And uh, I think uh, as I've thought over the four years, I think that's, uh, that's what I've done the best. Um, and it's, you know, fun little things that you can point to. Um, and then, you know, trying to be a friend with, with other board members, even if you don't have the same letter next to your name on the ballot, um, because, <clears throat> They're people too, and you know they have the same dignity and respect. And you know you can't, you know you got to give them the benefit of the doubt um, until they really disappoint you, maybe. And then you just kind of you do what you can. Um, but I think like that's another part that's missing is sort of yes, they're not they're not the same team, but um, you know technically we're all playing for the same country, and we all have to remember that at the end of the day. Like it's yeah, just because because there are. You don't agree on one particular issue doesn't mean you can't agree on 10 other issues, honestly. Um, yeah. Well, we've we kind of lost that, haven't we? It, it It is more like you agree with me or you don't agree with me. It's mm -hmm. all or nothing. It's all about power now. Um, and I mean, it always is about power, but there's always in, in societies and governments, there's always this balance line, you know, mm -hmm. and at some point you cross a threshold and it seems like people are scared to retreat back to, you know, to give up power and be like, hey, that's not really what the objective is. It's not about, you know, gaining power and getting what we want. It's about having debate and compromise and writing legislation and working together. And, you know, you have a whole generation that's grown up and they don't even remember that and kind of it makes it hard to go back to that moment and uh, hopefully we can get there sooner than later. That's why it's important to talk about it. I mean, like just reminding people that the the situation we're in now was never was never it's not a perpetual thing. Like the world changes, life changes, people change, and um, the uh, as you like to talk about, like the Reed's rules in, in Congress, like those were rules that were just put in place that's not in the Constitution. It's just one guy who thought like this would make my job so much better, and uh, we just need another person in charge to say like no 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 this will make my job so much better, or. Uh, Actually, no, I think I think what you got to say is the speaker has to have the humility to say, like, it's not about me. It's about the country. 
and then yes. it's going to make the country better. It's going to make my job more difficult, perhaps, um, but it's better for everyone. And I think that's what's missing. That's exactly it. It is going to make the speaker's job more difficult. They're going to have to talk to more people. They're going to have to build coalitions and compromises across party lines to get anything done. That's how the system was designed. It was not designed to be easy for the person in charge. If you want easy, then don't be the person in charge. Being the person in charge is hard. It's a lot of responsibility, and you have to wield that responsibility responsibly. Otherwise, people's rights get infringed, and people get upset, and they get frustrated, and you have bad things that happen in your country. Yeah, that's true. You know, If you want an easy job, just become a dictator, right? That's well, it's easy until the end, right? <laughs> Never ends well for the dictators, does it? <laughs> Either in jail or beheaded, I think is, is kind of. Uh, sometimes they get found in a hole. <laughs> or, well, he wasn't a dictator. I was going to say dumped in the ocean, but that was just a completely you know, a dictator of his clan, right? <laughs> All right, John. What do you think? Was that a good show? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been uh, I, I put out a little uh, little blurb earlier today. We'll throw it into the, the pod about uh, upcoming what the book podcast um, will be out in December. We're reading Ender's Shadow and uh, for the politics and parenting fan uh, fans out there, you might want to take a listen to this one. There's a great little snippet about <clears throat> power and how the different ways that power is obtained and gained. And it just reminded me a lot of populism. Um, so you'll have to check it out. Can't wait. And also, uh, you can check out the article of uh, John Bingham in the Freeman newsletters. Um, that's on Substack. You can find it there. Um, it's a great little outfit. Um, Justin Stapley is kind of Put it on. I, I kind of met him on Twitter. He's got a lot of really talented uh, writers writing just great, thoughtful pieces on there. I highly recommend that you go on um, and subscribe, uh, like, and share that publication as well. And you can find us at Politics and Parenting on Substack and on Spotify. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share. Peace and love. <laughs>